Hi, I'm Michael. Welcome to Beyond the Screenplay. Today we are talking about Parasite, the 2019 film written by Bong Joon-ho and Jin Wan Han, directed by Bong Joon-ho. I'm here with the Lessons from Screenplay team, Trisha Arand. Hello, everyone. Brian Bittner. Hello, hello. And Alex Calleros. Hi. Now, when I say I'm here with the team, I mean that figuratively because we are recording remotely today. Uh, And also just want to give a heads up that we're probably going to butcher some names, but we're going to try hard not to, but you'll have to forgive us (laughs) when we inevitably do. So Parasite is a movie that became this like sensation. I just remember seeing it on Twitter, people saying, oh, this movie Parasite, it's so good. You should go see it. And then more and more people and then it spiraling out of control and then winning best picture at the Oscars, which was super exciting. My experience of hearing about it was just just that hearing people say, this is so great. You got to go see it. Conversations about it. But I saw no trailers. Uh, I had no idea what it was about. It seemed like kind of a horror movie ish. Yeah. Uh, But but otherwise, I didn't know anything about it. And so I went into the theater completely cold and was just swept away in this crazy bonkers awesome amazing film uh i'm curious for you guys did you know what it was about had you seen trailers for it before it it came out so i uh, knew what it was about i'd read about parasite but i had purposely avoided trailers because it sounded really good um i'd loved uh the director's previous two films uh okja and snowpiercer so mm-hmm. i was already down so i didn't need the trailer to know that i wanted to go see it and uh i did know it was about class and it was very relevant to our times. That was all the all the reviews were talking about that. So I, I knew kind of what to expect as far as it being a parable and being an allegory for mm-hmm. you know uh, income inequality and all these issues. But in the, in the classical uh, Bong Joon Ho way, it just got bonkers by the end. <laughs> and it, I walked out of the theater being a little disoriented, like wow, what did I just go through? And I think it wasn't until the second viewing that I really fell in love with it because I knew what it was and I got so much more depth out of every part of it and part of what we talked about in our video about symbols and motifs uh we can get into that but it it just is such a rich movie on so many levels it rewards multiple viewings which is mm-hmm. always my favorite movies reward multiple viewings so yeah I love now it. so I have a question so I did not get to see this in theaters for those of you that saw it in theaters is there like an audible response in the middle of the movie when it takes that horrifying turn? Was that true for you, Alex? I think there was definitely like nervous laughter in the theater of like, what mm-hmm. is what is happening now? <laughs> what? And definitely in the end, in the finale with some of the, oh my God. Just, yeah. the crazy bloodbath, uh, there was a lot of reaction. <laughs> yeah. Because like I so I watched this in my living room and I, you know, have a very low tolerance for horror movies. And so I was like and I kind of had seen like I, I tried to I tried not to see too much about it, but I was nervous going into it where I was like, I, I have the feeling this is going to get scary at a certain point. So I was honestly just like on the edge of my seat the whole time because I was expecting something scary to happen like around every corner almost. But nothing really prepares you for what exactly does happen. And that Mm -hmm. tracking shot that goes down the staircase and just goes and goes and goes. It's just so insane. And it's like one of the, maybe the greatest midpoint in a movie ever. (laughs) Yeah. I I really want to talk about midpoints at some point because this one, it's great. Yeah. It's incredible. I don't know. What was your experience, Bri? 
Um, so unlike Alex, I did not like Snowpiercer. I, I think it was one of the first movies I can, or, or no, one of the only movies in the past five or so years where when the credits rolled, I sort of breathed a sigh of relief that I didn't have to be watching it anymore. <laughs> um, <laughs> and that was partially just because of how over the top he is as a filmmaker. Um, and I also haven't seen his other movies, so I, I don't have anything to compare it to. But I, I initially was like, okay, it's the guy who made Snowpiercer. And when I saw like trailers for Okja, I was like, I don't know if this is my kind of movie either. Um, but then, of course, you know, as you said, Michael, just like word of mouth was like Parasite, Parasite, Parasite. And I also kind of felt it was like horror kind of thing. I was like, oh, it's the guy who made like the host and stuff. Um, mm-hmm. And then, uh, but then, I, and I had seen some like i don't even know if i'd i'd probably seen full trailers but just all the ads you see and everything so i had a good sense of like the style and the subject matter of the movie but i went in fairly cold and just had a blast watching it and i think the only the only downside was every time the movie did get like in the first half even whenever the movie got a little showy and sort of cinematic i was like ah oh, snowpiercer snowpiercer like i just had that like it's like weird to watch a movie by a filmmaker that you already have previous thoughts about you know like watching a tarantino movie or something um so i had just like a little bit of uh restraints on kind of but uh but i still really loved it and it was one of my favorite movies of the year and then yeah rewatching it again uh was just a blast because now i knew like once you know where the movie goes the fact that it is sort of a little big in the beginning makes perfect sense. Yeah, that's something I was I wanted to ask also because this is my first Bong Joon Ho movie, so I I had heard the name and knew that he had done these other films, kind of, but I didn't have that with me when I was sitting down in the theater. So I really just had no idea what to expect, and and I think the the first half of the movie is it's like a comedy in some ways mm-hmm. but it, it still has this like tension like like the directing i felt was just really really confident and the, i think the moment that i knew i was in good hands with the filmmaking is really early on when there's that one shot where uh the family is trying to convince the woman from the pizza place that like Kiwu should come, the sun should come and like be one of the workers. And it's mm-hmm. just done in this one shot. It just pushes in and it's just him talking to her at first. And then the sister comes and the mom and they're all mm-hmm. kind of crowding the frame and like pressuring her and the staging of the guy in the background. I was just like, oh, this is, there's a really simple, uninteresting way to do the scene that would be fine and convey everything. But this is, being done in a very intentional way and so there was this tension between like this feels like yeah this satire dark comedy kind of thing but it's being told in kind of a horror film way that just really like captured me and uh made it just a really really fun watch and then yeah it all explodes at that midpoint the similar thing I had said about um, like Moonlight or Roma, where it's like they're telling a very simple story, but in this big cinematic way. And those movies do it as part of their style. Parasite does it because it is going to become turn into a movie that where that makes sense as a style. Um, but yeah, it's just it's an interesting it's interesting how your brain sort of separates the story that you are seeing, the very literal story you're being told and the way you're being told that story. And you sort of go into 
like almost fight or flight mode if it's if it feels horror-y or you go into like real tense mode you know something like the diner scene in moonlight where you're just like the entire time like waiting for something to happen <laughs> like and some people will complain nothing happens but like i love it because it's just like i've never been so on the edge of my seat just like watching people chat basically small talk you know mm-hmm. i was gonna say that it also kind of reminds me of get out and, and the idea of that you know, Jordan Peele always talked about Get Out being a social thriller. And this feels very much in the same genre of mm-hmm. taking kind of an uncomfortable issue and an issue that we don't want to really talk about or deal with too directly in polite society, but that really needs to be aired out and and airing it out through the form of both comedy, but also like extreme tension and horror thriller elements. Well, I think this has a lot in common with us. Like, yeah. it's oh, to me, would, like, yeah, I had done this deep dive into... It's literally like a top and bottom Yeah, family. I mean, it's yeah. that classic, we we see that kind of, like, drawing room, um, like, upstairs, downstairs kind of drama, you know, a lot in terms of when we're, we're wrestling with class, that actual, like, making social stratification into literal stratification as it, you know, in terms of, like, levels of above the earth and under the earth. And we see this in, in film language all the time, right? You see a billionaire... Um, or like even somebody like Tony Stark, right? He lives at the top of a tower, right? And then you have the the poor people sort of or like the middle class that live in like the middle level. And then you have people who live like all the way down below in basements or other subterranean areas like they do in us. And so I think that I was really, I had just done a deep dive into us for a Wisecrack video. First of all, very scary to watch. And I really struggled with sitting through that movie to Jordan Peele's credit, um, because it really did scare me. But also it wrestles with so many of the same themes, right? And we can get into this more, but just like all the mirroring that's going on in both of those movies of how these are two, like these people are mirrors of each other. They are clones of each other, right? And there's not that much difference actually. So like the the actual makeup of the Park family being the two parents, a boy and a girl, like sort of perfect cookie cutter little family. It's the same demographic, like same makeup in the Kim family. Mm -hmm. Um, And then of course you have the, the uh, former housekeeper who's living then and her husband who are living then underneath. Um, But yeah, it's interesting that so many movies about this same thing, you know, kind of came out all at once. Um, and so to me, it's no shock that like Parasite was able to like cut in, like touch that nerve, but also because of what it is, it's so effective. Yeah. It was, uh, something Bong Joon-ho said in an interview, he said like, look, you have Get Out and you have Us and you have a Burning and you have this movie. He's like, it's not a coincidence. We're not all copying off each other. It's not a coincidence that every filmmakers all over the world have a very similar thing to say at a same point in time. Um, but another going back to Kurosawa again, sorry guys, but I uh, saw high and low last year and uh, Bong Joon-ho said that was a absolutely a huge inspiration for him for Parasite. Uh, it takes place in this mansion on a hill basically. And this wealthy uh, patriarch and then a child gets kidnapped and there's a criminal basically who you realize he lives in the slums, which is way down the hill. And he has to look up every day out his window at this gorgeous house. And, uh, and then those two characters basically mirror each other and play with each other. And it's a very similar sort of class statement and awesome movie, by the way, check it out. Nice. It's also interesting that the way that these movies are 
kind of being marketed is in is always in the horror genre. Uh, and this is something that came up because I was talking to my mother about this mm-hmm. and she had heard people were saying parasite and she wanted to see it, but she was like afraid it was going to be too scary. And it was kind of like the same thing that had happened with get out where I knew a lot of people that wanted to see it, but they were like, Oh, is it too scary? Cause some people are turned off by horror films. Mm. We don't know any, there aren't any on this podcast, <laughs> but some people, um, that is the case. Uh, and I then saw get the out. movie. Right. Well, and, and so get out is, is not, scary scary like there's i think there's many different tiers to horror films and they're pretty sure. accessible safe more like suspense thrillers in some ways us is much more obviously a horror horror film but get out's also more of a horror film than parasite is for instance oh definitely right yeah but so it's it's just interesting and you know from people i've talked to in the industry it's clear that it's uh basically the only movies people go and see right now are superhero films and horror films like those are the movies that actually make money yeah so whether or not you want it to be marketed as a horror film that's what they have to do to get people into the seats which is an interesting thing but it is you know at the midpoint of parasite it does spin and become this whole other half of the story and even the timeline is different like the first half you know that's weeks or whatever maybe days uh of the kim family infiltrating this rich family and then from midpoint to the ending it's like 24 36 hours like it all happens really quickly um and i that was just one of the many things that struck me about the the change that happens in the midpoint and i'm kind of like a midpoint like (laughs) nerd like it just yeah 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 (laughs) a midpoint nerd as far as the midpoint goes like watching it again recently after that reveal, the tension is so high for such a long period of time. Like you get kind of a little bit of a respite when they go home to the flooded house and that's just kind of a different mood. But mm-hmm. man, as soon as the parks turn around and start heading home because it's raining at the campsite, <laughs> like everything is screwed. It's the you know, it's the make it worse rule of thumb. Like everything that could possibly goes wrong goes wrong so quickly and so like so many dominoes fall so fast. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, it's it's really remarkable filmmaking. And yeah. Uh, yeah. I also love that um, for how much the movie shifts in the middle. Cause you have movies like um, from dust till dawn, which just literally turned into a different <laughs> movie halfway through or like, you know, it's I love just that like, movie. I, I'm sorry. I love it. I, I love the first act. And then I'm like, Oh, I want to see this like Tarantino movie. And then I'm like, what is happening? <laughs> um, but I feel like, Parasite's a great example of a movie that uses the midpoint to throw this total twist and wrench in the works, but it absolutely makes sense. Like, it's just like, okay, here is now that we've gotten to this point in the story, what happens next and what happens next is unexpected, but it all flows from everything we've been to up until this point. Yeah. And I think the reason that that is so effective when I watched it, I've watched it now, I think three times, but like when you watch it again, you, you see the breadcrumbs that have been left for you the whole time about what's going to happen because that it's enough for two. Yeah, exactly. All of those little things, because we understand that the housekeeper's character is so important, but it's hard for us to understand why, like she really is the only, I mean, we meet the driver very briefly. Like we know that Min was the other tutor, but it's like, this is the person that is the hardest person to wrench out of this place. She's very embedded in the situation. And so like 
she's the actual the only one of the the people that they end up replacing that is an actual character and so when she exits the movie we know she's not gone right there's something there where we're like she's not gone i remember specifically in the theater like that shot of the housekeeper leaving and it's in the rain and it kind of lingers on her Mm -hmm. just a little bit longer so you know like like something is happening here that's more than just goodbye from the movie but it's like right in that perfect zone where you don't know what and you don't it doesn't hang up a lantern on it too much yeah well, it could also be read as just you're supposed to feel bad for her because because now you're not sure that you're on the kim's side anymore you know which i think that it's something the first time definitely as we were talking about the movie i was like oh yeah they're kind of bad people or whatever but rewatching it it was like oh no Things do sort of escalate where Kiwu's like, no, I'm going to take this job, but like, I'm going to go to college and blah, blah, blah. And then, uh, and then the daughter is like, yeah, like I'll kind of maybe grift my way in. And then they're literally like getting people fired and sending them to the, to the hospital in order to get, install right. themselves into this house. So it's like, as the movie goes on, you become uh, less and less sort of morally aligned with these characters, but in a way that you sort of you're with them enough at the beginning that you're like, well, I'm along for the ride now. One little uh, tease that I really liked, I noticed the second time was when uh, Ki Jung or Jessica, when she asked about, did something happen in the first grade? In the background, you can see the lights go off in the basement. So it's like right after they come up from the the basement and then the housekeeper walks away and then the lights go off. And like, it's just, it's like, Um. seems so obvious when you watch the movie, like like on multiple viewings, but the first time, you know, no way I would have noticed it. Cool. Yeah. I was just going to follow up on that shot of the housekeeper leaving after being fired. Uh, it, It is that amazing thing where the first time you watch the movie, I didn't think twice about it. I thought, Oh, this is, this is here to make us empathize with this poor housekeeper we now understand that Kim's have kind of gotten corrupted in right. their quest to replace everybody. And on the second viewing, it was like, oh, no, this is clearly a shot about the fact that she's leaving her husband in the basement. And what is she going to do? And she mm-hmm. has to figure out what to do now. So just, mm-hmm. yeah, I love when movies pull that off. It's like the first viewing, there's a, there's a way to interpret it. On the second viewing, it equally makes sense with the new understanding. Hello listener, Michael here, and this episode of Beyond the Screenplay is sponsored by Skillshare. As someone who has been fortunate enough to be able to work from home for several years, I've become very familiar with its benefits and drawbacks. On one hand, it's great to be able to work in your pajamas and be flexible with your hours, but at the same time, you're surrounded by a lot of distractions. I mean, home is where I keep all my video games. So for me, it was important to designate certain spaces as work-only zones, develop a morning routine, and set specific work hours. But everyone works differently, and workflows evolve, so I'm always on the lookout for new resources on how to make the most of your work time. For example, I recently found a class on Skillshare called Simple Productivity, How to Accomplish More with Less by Greg McKeon. In the class, Greg talks about how to decide what's most important to you and how to say no to non-essential commitments. He provides day-to-day tips for running an essentialist life and ways to hold yourself accountable for the long term. It was exactly this kind of thing that helped me become more productive in life, working smarter rather than simply harder, and maintaining control over all the things on your plate. You can check out Greg's class, as well as the other thousands of classes that Skillshare has on writing, photography, design, and more at Skillshare.com slash beyond the screenplay. 
The first 500 listeners to use our link will get two free months of Skillshare Premium Membership. Explore your creativity at Skillshare.com slash Beyond the Screenplay and get two free months of Premium Membership. Thanks to Skillshare for sponsoring Beyond the Screenplay. Well, it's interesting. The first half of this almost has like a heist movie vibe to it a little bit. Yes, where like they have, and this is kind of going back to what you were saying, Brian. Where it's like you're along for the ride because you want to see them actually pull it off. Because you, we don't know the plan. We don't know how they're going to pull it off. There's that interesting um, voiceover. Um, where Ki Jung is talking about like, well, she's deathly allergic to peaches and da da da, and she's kind of explaining, like giving hints of the plan, and then it cuts to that wonderful scene where she's coaching her dad through like how to give the story about the active TV, and it's just like we're we're seeing the plan, but we're also seeing it unfold, but we want to see it work out. So even like though it's morally sort of ambiguous or or even reprehensible, um, we kind of want to see them pull it off because it's just the fun of getting to watch them do it. It's absolutely fun. I mean, the way that sequence has the climax where he he does the final touch of the like hot sauce. So on the, good. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and the look on his face when he turns from the trash. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's so well, yeah, <laughs> I, I feel like going off of what you were saying, Trisha, I think one of the triumphs of this movie is that it, it is morally complex. Yeah. Like I think as soon as you start to feel comfortable with your relationship with the Kims and what they're doing, something happens to make it, to kind of undercut that or, or create this counterpoint where, you know, you see them at the beginning and they have this life of poverty. This is awful. And there's this opportunity. There's a little bit of dishonesty in it, but it seems like maybe it's a win-win situation. And then once Kiwu brings in his sister, it's like, okay, well, we're kind of getting manipulative, but we've seen that she is skilled in her craft. So mm-hmm. like, again, maybe this is still, and then as they start bringing in their parents and like actively sabotaging people, is you start to be like, well, this is feels a little bit less, but that's also when, like you were just saying, Alex, like the the filmmaking gets fun. So it's like you don't want this to be happening, but you also really do want it to be happening because it's so much fun. I, I think it's just so interesting. You know, when I walked out of the theater to go back to the midpoint, my my first thought was like, I this the structural design of this movie is so interesting, and I feel like it follows this path that most movies don't where you know the midpoint is just such a midpoint and it's it's a midpoint where (laughs) he's the midpoint guy everybody you know what i mean but like it's it's such a clear false victory where it's like they they have won they have the house they've gotten everything they wanted and the movie is even like meta and you know she's screaming and then like lightning and thunder happens. Like there's so much happening that's signaling like, okay, this is all about to go downhill, but you don't know how like it's going to go downhill. And so it's, it's an interesting just way that arc plays out. And I was talking to a friend who said he was really into the movie and liked the movie, but the second half and especially the ending didn't play for him. Uh, and that he felt like he he kind of lost his empathetic connection to him. And, sure. and we were talking and I, I feel like part of that is just the structure and nature of this kind of tragic disillusionment story where it's the second half isn't fun. It's a fall from grace. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah, it was almost exhausting to watch it the second time just because it is 
such a journey and we've talked about like we talked about a minority report uh, i think we talked about another podcast where like movies that don't just feel like that was a fun way to spend 90 minutes movies that feel like you are going somewhere and like it's going to take you on this absolute ride um i also love it's sort of like does both things that midpoints usually do like uh john york talks about the midpoint being like where the protagonist gets the elixir so they can you know make it out of the forest so we did a video on collateral about that but also like before sunset it's like oh the midpoint is where like bad things happen <laughs> and like where the where mm -hmm. a wrench gets thrown in the works you know and parasite's a great example of both those things happen like they get everything they ever wanted and then literally five minutes later, it's like, mm, and now part two. Then they get well, threatened to text point, which I love. Oh, yeah. That, that is that is brilliant. I thought the way yeah, they use right. the send button is like, like a rocket launcher. It's Yeah. 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 It's so, so awesome. Good. Well, um, going back to what you were saying, Bri, it, that scene with them in the, you know, after they, right before they discover um, that people are in the basement, um, that scene where they're in the house and they've just like basically taken it over. You know, we see the we see Kijung in the bathtub and they're like, you know, drinking their water and they're taking a nap in the beautiful sunlight in the living room. And, mm -hmm. you know, um, Kiwoo is out on the lawn just reading and looking into the blue sky. And it, it, it is the most quintessential like they have the thing they want. And I love that the tagline, I think it was on the British poster that I saw this, the tagline that they put was act like you own the place. Which is exactly like what this movie is. Right. That's great. Um, but that, but then the scene where they're all drinking, um, where the Kims are all together and they're they're drinking and they're talking about the parks. And I think that scene is so critical for a number of reasons. Um, it, it gets at a lot of the thematic stuff, which we can get into um about the movie, but it also like it helps us kind of reconcile ourselves with what it is that they're doing so they even touch on that where she's like you know uh, you know we had to get that chauffeur fired and it's like well he probably found a better job he's young he's talented like he he probably is somewhere better now um so they're talking about that and sort of making their own moral sense of it right right but but then also they're talking about the parks and they they clearly don't bear any ill will toward the parks, really. Like, it's so interesting because that scene is mirrored. You know, it really is only minutes later when the Kims are then hiding under the coffee table and the parks are talking about them. Right. And so, like, right, yeah. when we hear when we hear the parks talk about them, the parks are mean, kind of, or they're just like, oh, poor people, gross. But when the Kims are talking about the parks, they actually kind of look up to them and, and they, they think they're like nice basically and good people. And that, you know, there's a, there's a whole conversation about um, being nice. You exactly. know, when you're rich, you can, you can afford to be nice. It smooths over mm -hmm. all the rough edges <laughs> having money. They are pretty mm -hmm. critical of how like gullible they are though. And, you know, cause especially, sure. I, sure. you know, like the, the age old thing is if you want to have your protagonist be a bad person, then just make sure the antagonist is even worse. And mm. like, I think that the, it's an interesting thing with Mrs. Park because she's not a bad person, but because she's so gullible, you almost get this like sixth sense of satisfaction of like seeing her be kind of grifted by this family where you're like, eh, if you're going to be that much of an idiot, then fine. I don't care. And that's horrible. Like it almost like makes you as the viewer feel like you're morally questionable. But I, I do love how convincing the kids are 
um, as both the tutor and the art teacher by just being so confident and intense about everything. Right. <laughs> They're right. just like, like, no, you can't be in the room. And, you know, I, I think if you look at this symbol here and just like, it just shows like, no matter what you do, as long as you really act like, you know, what the hell you're talking about, everyone will believe you. Yeah. I love when she's like, that corner is the schizophrenia zone. <laughs> like, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so brilliant. It's so good. And I love going back again to that, the, the scene where they're, you know, acting like they own the place. I also, that was another moment where I was struck by the filmmaking and the, the confidence of the filmmaking where there are these shots that are like kind of a wonders. Like it's on Ki-jung as she's on the couch drinking and then it'll dolly over and then rack to Ki-woo at, right as he says his line and it feels organic, but it's also so smooth and precise that it must be planned. And it, there was just a lot of really interesting filmmaking happening that was not showy at all but was really interesting to pay attention to and i read that they um well that bong joon ho didn't actually do that much traditional coverage where it wasn't like he did a a wide you know and then like a shot reverse shot or whatever i read that he just storyboarded you know in a very hitchcock sort of way exactly what he wanted it to be and that was what they shot. And so in order to like edit, they would use different takes of stuff, but they kind of didn't have like an, a lot of options, which like multiple angles. Yeah. Which, you know, respect. I like, I can't imagine doing that myself. That's, that's such confident filmmaking, but it's exactly what you're saying. Um, he's conveying what he wants within the corners of the frame. And also, and of course, letting the performances and the script, which is amazing, speak for itself. The, I mean, just in general, the cinematography, the lighting, the pacing, the music, like this movie just feels so clean and crisp and like everything about it is so purposeful and like beautifully executed. They built those sets. Mm-hmm. They, they built them. That wasn't a real house? No. I think the top they just, floor they build it for me? isn't even they real. built it. No, the top floor isn't even real. Like it's, CG. it's amazing. It's, it's so... <laughs> That house is so incredible and like it's so you you just believe it. I just believe it. They were like, this was designed by this famous architect and he lived here and da da da. I was like, I'm sure that is a like that's like a Frank Lloyd Wright house in the United States. You know, it's like I'm sure that it is like a, a very well-known architect and it's like a famous house in Korea, 100 percent. And of course, it's not. And they they did it because they thought we're thinking about. Like I was reading that they actually um, the production designers and Bong Joon-ho and everything were like came up with a story for who the architect is and like what he would have been prioritizing and like the way that the light would fall on the lot. And so like he definitely, again, wanted to convey. So you have all these wide horizontal spaces and these like wide windows and vistas that like look outside instead of vertical space and and all of this stuff. So they kind of just I mean. It's it's just amazing. And the, the entire street that the Kims live on is a set as well. The whole street because mm. they flooded it. Like, right. It's right. incredible. Yeah. And, and Bong Joon-ho talked about how the design of that house had to, like, make sense for who could be, like, spying on people at different times and all that kind of mm-hmm. stuff. So basically, like, they had to design the house as they were designing the story, which is incredible. It's so cool. And part of what was really cool about it also as you know, a dumb American was getting to see another culture and like different, you know, stratospheres of, of social class and et cetera, and how that is manifest in Korea. Like, I feel like that's one of the things I loved about Roma also mm-hmm. is that it 
it painted this like full portrait of what Mexico is like or was and, then because that's a period wasn't movie, or yeah. was then right yeah but i feel like we have such a narrow view of so many of these places that it was i feel like that was one of the extra bonus candy things that came along with this movie not just that it was well made but you're also getting exposure to something that most people uh don't get to See, there's obviously a lot of foreign films that you can check out. I would encourage everybody listening because I could talk about what I've read, but I'm sure I would mess it up. But I would really encourage everybody to read more about what's going on in Korea um, and in terms of the frustration of young people who are out of work um, and like the military culture and like all, all kinds of stuff like there's there's a lot of interesting stuff that this is very specifically commenting on and it does have a lot of resonance with american viewers because some of it rings very like sort of similar similarly to what we have um you know we talk about like gen z and millennials and like our anxieties and fears and things like that so kiwu is essentially of our generation right and so we're going through kind of similar things, but obviously in dramatically different cultures. But I would really encourage people to read a lot more about that because this movie definitely opens a door into it, but obviously isn't doesn't say everything that there is to say. Um, so yeah, definitely look up more about that. I, I've like only sort of scratched the surface of what this is engaging with specifically in Korean culture. But then of course it's saying something international as well. One thing I was going to say too is that there's a lot of interesting references, usually between the parks of uh towards america about like mm -hmm. oh this tent this tent is safe in the rain it was made in the u.s and kind of like how a lot of their 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 culture of wealth was imported from the west you know, well, that, colonialism that yeah it was very interesting yeah. tension in the movie as well of like there's this kind of there's this there's some south korean like authenticity almost in like the food and all these elements but then there's a very western sheen to the to the way the wealthy are living and that was just very interesting to, to see and also some of like the a lot of the jokes and things they talked about uh had were dealing with their anxiety about north korea there was a lot of you know when they were talking about the missile launcher on the send mm -hmm. button of their cell phone mm. it's like you know i'm kim jong-un i'm gonna launch the missile it was i loved all those different it's interesting to see all that from that perspective uh so, yeah. What I thought you were going to say, Alex, um, was going back to what makes it have international appeal, which is all of the like non um, just these things that are transcendent, right? Like motifs and symbols, which we can get into yeah. a little bit if you want to. Another thing that is interesting in the movie is this kind of worship of the wealthy. And, you know, when they go down to the basement and they meet, they meet a man who's been living there for who knows how long, uh, he has almost like a shrine to Mr. Park on his wall. And yeah. he's, trying, he's trying to send Morse code messages to Mr. Park, who he kind of is, is thanking, you know, gratefully for like allowing him to live here or, you know, making his life possible. And I think that's a really interesting uh, cultural uh, critique, you know, of, of a culture of where people are living in pretty dire conditions and yet are voting for uh, worshiping in their own kind of way, this culture of wealth that they're probably never going to have access to. Um, and mm -hmm. I think I think that it's, it's obviously it speaks universally. It's kind of a global moment we're in right, we're in right now. I really like that. Like Trisha, you talked about a scene that sort of like really speaks to the theme and everything. And one line I didn't 
pick up on before was when they are talking to the couple in the basement and the husband says like, yeah, I had to use loan sharks because we had no choice. And, and the wife says like, no, I always, you know, make sure to only take things out of my own pay or my own portions and that kind of thing. Like you do get the sense that they did start from this sort of more wholesome place and they've kind of gotten to this crazy desperate place. And that's sort of the same arc you follow the Kims on, which is they, Mm -hmm. like, like I said before, they do start in a place where you're like, okay, like, I guess you're maybe like milking the system a little, but like your intentions are, and you see how quickly they're like, oh no, now we're so corrupted that when we, when we see someone who basically looks like we looked a week ago, we're not going to help them even though they're maybe coming from a more uh, morally justified place than we are, like we don't have time for these people kind of thing. And it's just like, there's so much going on. That's that's part of the critique as well is the way that I think my interpretation of the movie is the way that the system is set up is that it's such a ruthless system, you know, kind of like every man for himself, winner takes all sort of economy that when you do kind of, cheat or whatever your way up to a, a position of some power then you're going to hold on to that at all costs there's not there's not a class solidarity with other people who are in need right who are now mm-hmm. below you mm-hmm. um yeah so since we're kind of talking about theme uh as you know we all saw parasite and we were talking about different things we wanted to discuss trisha you brought up this idea of looking at symbols and motifs and kind of pointed out to me who's someone that doesn't automatically read symbols and motifs when when watching a film the way that those can support the theme and as alex you've said multiple times helps make the thematic statements be able to travel across cultures because it isn't language-based kind of a thing so yeah trisha do you want to talk a little bit about yeah and, and i just want to return this this actually all does tie together i want to return to what you guys were saying alex and brian just a minute ago um which is just about i think one of the things that actually doesn't connect um as well is that we as americans tend to think of ourselves as individuals and so when we see individuals in film we tend to um like isolate them and just sort of like look at them like well look at what that person is doing they're doing something like immoral or dishonest and like that's an individual choice that that person is making but not everybody has to make that choice kind of thing that's very very western that mindset of thinking as as individuals i think one of the reasons that this movie is very successful across cultures is that because although Kiwu is the protagonist, really the entire Kim family is the protagonist. They're all on the same journey. It's like a shared protagonist. Yes. And I think that helps us read their actions. Like there's no one person in the Kim family that's like, why would you cheat this person? Why would you lie about this thing? They're all on the same page. And that helps us in our Western brains extend the boundaries of who we see these people to be. And that brings this movie onto more of the plane that we've discussed many times on this podcast of a parable or a fable. The Kims are not mm-hmm. meant to be read as individuals and it helps that there are four of them instead of just one that helps us see that they're not meant to be read as individuals any more than the parks are meant to be read as individuals. These are representations of an in- entire classes and entire cultures and systems. Yeah. And so I think that's 
part of why this was able to more than maybe some of Bong Joon-ho's other films um, or films from other places around the world where, again, we are like, well, that person is doing a thing I don't understand or agree with. And that's an individual thing that they're choosing to do. But this movie sort of helps right. us see the bigger picture a little bit. Yeah, it's like if you watch a movie where a society is operating a certain way, you aren't necessarily going like, oh, I don't know if I agree with this choice because it's not a choice it's a it's a world that the movie is showing you as opposed right. to if a character does something so having a family be sort of a shared protagonist is kind of a way of like almost bridging that gap where you're like well they collectively make these choices and they collectively do this thing so i guess that's just the way it it's like a mini society of four people in a in a weird kind of way but i i kind of get what you're saying there yeah yeah i think so but anyway, just returning back to some of the amazing like filmmaking techniques here and almost literary techniques here, um, just wanting to spend some time talking about like motifs and how I mean, I already touched earlier on like the upstairs, downstairs, kind of how the levels themselves um, are imagery, right, that we can concretely point to and say, like, the Parks live up there, the Kims live here in the middle Right, which is the first shot of the movie, mm -hmm. the that those that basement row of windows. And then we have people who live all the way down at the lowest level. So that's one thing. And and leaning into that It's basically Snowpiercer, but if the train went up. Yep. <laughs> right. Exactly right. right. <laughs> and extrapolating from that are all of the the images of light in here, right? Where they're specifically mentioned like, oh, the light is so beautiful in the park's house, right? Like they have access to light as though that's a thing that only the wealthy are allowed to have. Um, and then of course we have like light signaling from the basement where like he mm -hmm. uses light to try to reach right upward into that space, um, which is a really cool idea and, and using Morse code, which again is very cool. But, and then food, which... It's really interesting that that Chung Sook ends up cooking um, that Ramdan is not a traditional Korean dish. It's like a weird mashup of cultures. It's like mm -hmm. ramen plus udon, right, is the idea behind it. And that's why when they're like, can you make Ramdan? She's like, what is that? <laughs> right. um, because it's again, it's this mashup of cultures. It's a symbol of, again, the like cultures clashing, but also like access to all kinds of culture right art music all these things that the parks have access to that the kims don't have access to that kind of thing and meanwhile we see the kims like eating in this chauffeur's cafeteria right this like driver's cafeteria where they're just like filling their plates with whatever it is or worse you know eating whatever it is that they're eating at moldy the bread dog the food something, and the moldy bread. Yeah. <laughs> something so disgusting so the, the theme here is being yeah the theme is reinforced concretely in these motifs over and over again well and one thing uh the the kind of last act of the movie this time watching it really got under my skin because you feel this like creeping like tension and also kind of a depression after their basement is flooded yes and you have the the contrast of the cheery mother, you know, Mrs. Park, going to throw an impo impromptu birthday party. She goes to her big closet with all of her like fancy clothes, and it cuts to the, like the storm shelter. People are like like fighting each other for like I don't know secondhand yeah. clothing. And then you see uh, the father Kitek, and he's driving her around, bagging her groceries, and you can just sense this like horrible or kind of sickening feeling of she's she's not even aware of his 
emotion or his energy or that something's very wrong with him right now. She's just completely ignoring him as a person. Yeah, she has. She's on the phone the entire time. She's not even speaking to him at all. She's Mm -hmm. just taking his presence for granted. That scene where she like is riding in the car and chatting on the riding the car and chatting on the phone and she like ultimately rolls the window down. She has her feet up. Like she has her shoes off. She yeah. has her feet up on the back of the seat. Just like that automatic of like, well, I don't smell. Like I And he, yeah, he's not complaining about the smell. I'm sure right, there is. Exactly. One. <laughs> but but you're absolutely right that this this sense of foreboding, like he's gonna crack. Right. You can see it where he right. after that speech where he talks about how not to make plans, right? Like the only plan that doesn't fail is no Which plan. Is so uh, good. I love that. Like there's just it's like the most sad possible yeah. monologue you could have basically of like why even try like it's better to not try and the other really uncomfortable moment is when he's dressing him up when mr park is dressing him up in the like a uh, indian headdress and it's like listen i know it's goofy but this is part of your pay like you know this is this is part of your job Can- right you're getting paid more yeah. for this okay so be it's happy. just like it's like the humiliation and like the power that is being well like wielded of yes. well we have the money we're paying you so you're going to do whatever we want you to do and you're not really a person <laughs> so it's yeah i will say that i think the the third act is the place that i feel is least perfect <laughs> is it the Disagree. critique i'm gonna make <laughs> i feel like for me that's where it like I think everything up to that point I buy and I'm with the motivations and the pace at which the motivations happen. I think the third act things kind of accelerate a little bit quickly for me. That was my experience in in the Mm. theater anyway, where it was like just the day before they were excited that they were getting paid and getting to do all this stuff for the parks. Like obviously what happens to them is awful. Like like the movie sets it up such that I can't really fault it, but just my experience of it was it it seemed to go a little bit fast for me from this is great, we're finally getting everything we ever wanted to now I'm so upset and offended I'm going to murder mm. this man. I will say the moment that he, that Kaitech, the father, murders Mr. Park, the first time I saw it, I didn't quite buy that the smell issue was enough to trigger that. I now appreciate it on a more meta level because we've investigated this motif of smell and I, I like it for that reason now. But I think that and also just kind of the Bong Joon-ho-ness of the conclusion of like literally the like resolution is that he's now going to live forever in the basement felt a little bit goofy also. But once again, on the more motif, symbolic, thematic level, I like it. So it, it it's that tricky line where like a lot of the movie works on the surface and you don't doesn't require you to be reading it as purely symbolic, but some of the stuff in the third act does really enter the true parable allegory yeah. land. Yeah, yeah definitely. I, I think on one side you you do have the fact that he's like trying to help his dying daughter and and mr park is like hey come on buddy let's go like get the keys so you right. know, you get the sense that he is primed to but yeah i read it more as where we are in kind of parable land now where like he doesn't literally kill him because he pinched his nose you know that's not the point <laughs> the point is everything we've seen up until that that part i think one of the things that 
helps the viewer because I agree with you that if you're still so grounded in the movie that you don't realize it's it's veered into like parable metaphor land, then the the denouement is so insane and so shocking. Like mm-hmm. th- it's obviously not realistic in any way. Like there would never be people trapped in the basement is thing number one. And, you know, and, and if there were, they're not going to be like murderous, you know, psychopaths probably. Although there definitely have been stories of, of crazy people living in people's attics and basements. So they may not have been before. That part kind of did make sense to me. The, the, the man living in the basement becoming a murderous rampager. That part worked. <laughs> sure. I think the thing, I think the thing that, that helps the audience make, the leap into like metaphor land though are some of the other like very, very outrageous images in here. So it's what you were saying, Alex, about like the native American headdress. And it's like, he's got this, you know, teepee in the backyard and the bright, bright, bright sun and the giant cake and like all of this stuff. It it kind of like pushes those symbols a little bit further. So it almost feels like Alice in Wonderlandy, right? Where at that midpoint we're like, we're through the looking glass now. Right. And like everything starts to get big and weird and weirder and progressively weirder. Because at that point, we kind of buy like, okay, the parks don't realize who the Kims are when they're infiltrating. But once after that happens and they, you know, the mom just kicks uh Moon Guang down the stairs. I love and- that moment. <laughs> Oh, that is another one of those uh, theater reaction moments. That was definitely oh my a big God. groan. Hey, my, my theater yeah. of just me and my yeah. girlfriend, we both like <laughs> vocally were like, ah! Right. right. Ditto. I don't know if it was the full theater, but it was definitely <laughs> right. a crunch. And, yeah. Yeah. And that's that's like the comedy of movement is when you take too much or too little effort to do something. And so the fact that she does too little to then have that dire consequence pushes you, I think, into that surreal space. Well, the party itself at the end, too, I think is pretty surreal. Like, there's, like, the lady singing, like, singing yeah. with a cellist, and uh-huh. it, it's, it, it goes into exactly. the absurd. And, and they're, yes. they're, they're chopping wood for some reason and wearing polos. <laughs> yeah. it's, I, I think it's fantastic, but it, there's something about that party that, that feels almost obscene in its, like, yeah. pastel perfectness. Yes, definitely. So the Lord of the Rings movies came out when I was in high school and they were an obsession of mine and kind of changed who I was as a filmmaker. I want to talk about the different cuts. I personally think they should make a master cut with the best of the theatrical and extended because I have problems with both. Is there a cut without Orlando Bloom? (laughs) What's wrong with Orlando Bloom? He's an elf. Elves are cool. I'd be an elf. Anyway, if you want to hear us talk more about Lord of the Rings, uh, we are actually going to be doing a three-part series for the podcast when we reach 500 patrons on Patreon. So if you want that to happen, go ahead and go to patreon.com, find Beyond the Screenplay, and support us. We will also be doing a Patreon-exclusive episode about the Hobbit trilogy, which is going to be interesting. (laughs) We hope to see you on Patreon. Just a couple bucks a month really helps support the channel and keeps us going. Subscribe, you fools. (laughs) (laughs) Brian. Awesome. Why don't we go around and quickly say what lessons we're going to take from Parasite. Brian, do you want to start us off? Sure. Uh, mine's really about escalation. I just really appreciated it with this movie, watching it the second time, especially like knowing where everything was going and sort of tracking each little beat change in the movie. Because a lot of movies you're following different characters in different locations and stuff. This is all, it's very linear, but you are, you're sort of, both the intensity and the pacing are just 
speeding up and speeding up. So you have Kiwu infiltrating and it's this very slow and methodical process and it's all interesting. But then you switch over to Ki Jung and then she is like also kind of slow and methodical, but it gets there a little more quickly. And then the the two parents is sort of like bang, bang, like we just kind of get there, get there. And then you have this midpoint. And then, as you said, Michael, like just the the actual time of the chronological time of the movie it goes from being several days to being just like 24 to 36 hours and everything because then you have then the parks come back home and then the party and then the finale it's like everything just keeps building 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 and again both in pacing and intensity so you just never feel like there's a moment where um where you just get to relax it's just you're always going on this on this building ride and i think that's really really cool and really impressive it doesn't have the you know that sort of thing where like the end of the second act of every movie you're, you're just kind of going like all right i kind of know what the next 40 minutes are going to be so we just have to let it happen like you are you don't get that in parasite and i love that yeah even the moments where it does slow down there's still this tension and because Definitely. of the momentum that you were talking about you you feel confident that there is a trajectory which i right. always appreciate in movies where it's right. like this movie is going somewhere i may not know where it's going but it knows and it's on its way. I just want to shout out all of the amazing character design in this. Um, and I, I feel like I talk about character design a lot, but in this case, what I really appreciate is uh, the character, very, very careful differentiation. Because as we talked about, the Kims necessarily need to function as almost one protagonist in this story, but they also can't be exactly one person, right? They all have to sort of, like fit together and have a dynamic and the dynamic that they have to have has to be in contrast to the park family's dynamic. And so when we see the park family interacting with each other, we're not necessarily supposed to infer anything about the parks as individuals, rather about their family dynamic and their family, um, yeah, connection or sort of how they function together and that is drawn in juxtaposition with what's happening with the Kims as a family. But you still have mm -hmm. to differentiate the characters. So I was thinking about like this, how, um, so the scenes, uh, returning to the scenes that are, are almost back to back there in the living room that are right on either side of the midpoint, right? Where the scene where the Kims are talking to each other and the brother and sister are really close and they really care about each other. And the brother's talking about how much he believes, um, you know, Kiwoo's like talking about how much he believes in Ki Jung and, and she's sort of like the pride and the hope of the family. And meanwhile, the parents are like in conflict with each other. Right. Um, where Chung Sook is saying like, yeah, your father's actually a coward and he would run away and hide and he doesn't deserve anything. And we kind of can see that, um, lack of intimacy or just this sort of uh, old wound, I guess, in their marriage, immediately contrasted with when the Park family gets home, we see the two kids who don't like each other at all and don't care about each other go their separate ways. The little boy is a spoiled brat and he goes off to his room and doesn't say anything. And then we see actually the parents then end up having sex on the couch in the living room. So there's intimacy there. So both of those like brother, sister and parent like relationships are in contrast with each other, mm -hmm. but they also keep those individual scenes interesting. It is really clever, subtle, well-rendered character design. And I think 
if you set out to watch it again, you'll only see more and more of that. I think it's really, really well done. Absolutely. And I, and I feel like it helps you connect with yes. all of the characters like at different times too, where like the, even the, the Park family, you know, at times they're saying not nice things about poor people, but like other times you get a sense that there is like a connection there and there's a, a life and they are a family. Well, and well. I just thought about this, actually, going back to intimacy between the adults and their partnership. Right. The only time we ever see any like sexual chemistry between the parents and the Kim family is after they're installed in the park's house. Mm-hmm. Right. Where like right. Th- where the right. mom is walking around and then like the. um yeah, uh, Kaitek comes in and like, you know, pinches her. And like, that's, we see that kind of like having the financial tension off of their relationship enables them to be close to each other the same way that we see some of that intimacy between Mr. and Mrs. Park. Right, right. It's in that same vein of like, if I was rich, I could afford yeah, to Yeah, if be I was nice rich, too. I could afford to like be president in my marriage. Right. Basically. Well, and the funny inverse of that is when the parks are having sex on the couch, they're actually doing like a fantasy scene of right. being of like being poor. It's like I'm yes. like she's like saying, I'm on drugs, I'm in the back of a I'm right. in the back of a yeah. car. Buy me like, drugs. Take, yeah, buy buy me right. drugs. Like we're gonna have sex in a dirty backseat of a car. The fetishization. <laughs> Is that a word? Yeah. Fetishization, sure, of the poor, right? Or of circumstances right. that are dramatically different than yours. Like, that's what gets them off once they have the wealth. <laughs> exactly. I feel like that was a moment where it felt like the captions were maybe missing a little bit, like not doing the full justice mm. of what was... Probably I feel not. like I, I got it. But you can yeah. read between yeah, the lines. for sure. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> By B-Dress. <Sure. laughs> right. uh, Alex, by me drugs. I mean, what's your lesson? We kind of talked about this before, but just this movie has such great setups and payoffs. Yes. It's just, it's such a well-designed movie in every way. And one of those setups and payoffs that's so perfect, is has kind of like a one, two, three structure, is first introducing the fact that the son had some kind of traumatic incident in the past, you know, yep. during, like, during like the art therapy intake session that, that comes up. And then midway through, we learned that he saw a ghost coming up through from the basement and that gave him a seizure and then it pays off in the party at the end where it's like the whole reason all the things all the dominoes fall in the party is because he sees the ghost from the basement right. in real life and has a seizure and the dad needs to get the keys to bring to the hospital and you know so just there's so many satisfying i think yeah dominoes falling is the best way to describe it just it was all put in place yeah the rock is there and rock, um yeah the- the plum extract where she's like, oh, go to the basement and get some plum ex- extract. Yes. And she goes down to that thing, and to the big bookcase with all the jars on it. And like, yeah, it's it's so well designed with the setups and payoffs. Yeah. And that shot of of him from the basement oh. where you're seeing it from the yeah. point of view as a little kid. It is that is one of the thing. best like, like horror images. That would mess you up. Yeah. Right. And you simultaneously... <laughs> totally get it but yeah. it's also terrible. Bong Joon-ho was like we cast this guy with these amazing eyes and we were like what well, let's do something with them and then that's when they got the idea <laughs> oh, like, they did. rising yeah his eyes through the whole ending are terrifying as well yeah yeah he's unsettling in general yeah i, I think kind of like i was saying earlier i was just so struck by the directing prowess that was like throughout this film i think it tickled my uh like david fincher zone a little bit right where there's the the clean precision 
and confidence in the filmmaking, but there is a like a looseness, like somehow there's this kind of almost improvisational mm. feeling with some of the filmmaking choices, despite it clearly being intentional, like they're choreographed moments and camera moves where you know it switches what side of the line things are being shot at at key moments or like floats between one character to another like i was saying earlier or even uh one of you was mentioning when kiwu was first talking to the daughter in the tutoring session that whole like scene is just one slow like push in and it's i think what i'm impressed by is that it it all feels effortless and organic despite it clearly being very intentional and controlled and that's something that i aspire to as a filmmaker so this is definitely a movie that i'm going to go through and watch all over again and like shot by shot like map okay what is this doing what is that doing how did he know that and like why does this work because yeah i just think the directing is really really good i was taking notes during my second viewing and i just kept saying what this is so good the cinematography is superb <laughs> this yeah best director best yeah everything's good it's just yeah, perfect. Right. Good work, Oscars. Well, why don't we say what we have been watching recently? Trisha, do you want to start us off? Sure. So I continued on my Jane Fonda kick. I've been talking to you guys about Jane Fonda, and I finally got around to watching They Shoot Horses, Don't They? Um, from 1969. Uh, it's a Sidney Pollock movie with Jane Fonda, Susanna York, uh, Michael Sarazini, and Bruce Dern. And it is set during the Depression and it's about these crazy dance marathons, like dance competitions that were all the rage during that time. Um, so if you don't know, people used to have like like weeks long dance competitions that Congress eventually had to pass a law against <laughs> because people were dying. Are like, you making this, this up? I'm not. <laughs> Read your history. Are the horses dancing or they're, they're humans dancing? <laughs> Listen, it's a very bizarre title because it's based on a novel. The horses have really nothing to do with the entire movie. Um, it is one of the best names for a movie ever. But this was actually happening. They were having these crazy dance marathons. It, it's basically the precursor of reality TV where they would put a bunch of couples on the dance floor and they would be like, OK, you have to dance now for weeks and weeks. You get like 10 minute breaks. You get like half an hour. What? <laughs> This sounds like a Bong Joon-ho movie. It, but it's like, it's based on a thing that actually happened in history. Like, <laughs> what? anyway, so it's, an, it's a weird film. It's an amazing exploration of one of the weirder things that's ever happened. But watching it, it feels so prescient because it's about like exploitation of people for like, basically poor people because everyone who enters the dance competition does it to win money because they desperately need it. It's the depression. Um, and Jane Fonda plays, she's the main character obviously. And she plays this really hard boiled, um, sarcastic, cynical young woman. Who's just like, I need the money. I really don't care about anything else. I'm going to win it. But everyone in it is like desperate. Like Bruce Dern plays the husband of a woman who's pregnant um, the entire time. And it's this torturous thing. And so it is about the exploitation of people who are desperate for money. And it's so humiliating everything that they get put through in this competition. And it's it's claustrophobic and it's hard to watch. It's also kind of funny because the situation is absurd. Um, anyway, great film. Uh, if you're into movies from the late 60s or Jane Fonda or Bruce Dern, I mean, honestly, or dance competitions, then check it out. 
<laughs> then Trisha has the movie for you. I mean, it's, check, it's, check, it's, check. It, it obviously checks all of my boxes because it's a female-led historical thing and it's kind of off the wall and awesome. So Awesome. Cool. Brian? Uh, I have been watching Jane Fonda's Abs, Buns, and Thighs from 1995. <laughs> Stop it! <laughs> no, I watched uh, the High Fidelity series on Hulu. Uh, starring Zoe Kravitz oh. um, and uh, Jake Lacey, which if you watch The Office all the way until the end and then watched for five more seasons, he shows up as uh, Pete, one of the two guys who shows up in the last couple seasons for no reason. And <laughs> I was really curious about the High Fidelity, which is one of my favorite movies of all time, being a series. I was thought it was really weird that Lisa Bonet's daughter is the star and not just playing Marie DeSalle's daughter or playing Marie DeSalle or something. I was like, yeah. oh, they're just it's just about a person named Rob who owns a record store. It's just like the movie, but a series. So um, or at least it starts out that way. So when I saw the trailer in the first few episodes, I thought like, okay, I know all the jokes that are coming. Like I'm, I get it. And then finally around the middle, it starts to it starts to take off and become its own thing. It finds its own voice and it'll take like one scene from the movie and do a whole episode kind of exploring that concept or, or that idea of that scene. Uh, Zoe Kravitz is fantastic. Like even from the first episode, I was like, okay, a different person in this role. I don't know how I would feel, but with her, I'm just like really compelled by her. And then the two coworkers, her two employees, the Jack Black and Todd Luizzo parallels of the show, they also, both of them in the first episode or two, I was like, eh, I don't know, these characters are a little weird. And then by the end, I was just totally in love with them. And the show gives them a little time to breathe and, and be their own people and everything. So, um, yeah, I really was really happy with it by the end. There's no chance Michael has seen High Fidelity. I've seen the trailers for it. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember those on the VHS back <laughs> in the day. But that's an interesting concept. Yeah, turning a movie into a series. Like they're doing a parasite. Yeah. Right. right. Yeah. They are. Wait, what? Is it for HBO? Yeah, for HBO. In, wow. uh, in theory, to star Mark Ruffalo and Tilda Swinton. Mm. Yep. And Bong Joon-ho. Yeah, it it is Bong Joon-ho. Really? I thought he was part of it. Yeah. It's an HBO limited series. Right. But instead of being a remake, it's, it's Bong Joon-ho having... He had so many ideas for the movie, which you can see in the movie because it feels like there's so much jam-packed into it uh, that he wanted to tell a longer version of it that would still feel interesting to new viewers but also feel for people who like the movie it's not going to feel like you're just watching the same thing over again which was part of what i didn't like about high fidelity in the first couple episodes it is in theory and i quote going to explore stories that happen in between the sequences in the film all right well we'll stay tuned to check that out mm -hmm. it's, it's an interesting concept okay Alex, what have you been watching? I watched the season three premiere of Westworld on HBO. Westworld's an interesting show. Uh, I have had a very mixed relationship with it the last two seasons. Uh, I, I'm a huge sci-fi fan. And if there's ever a show given a good budget on a network like HBO that is sci-fi, I, I want to like it and I want it to be good and I want to be into it. But man, Westworld really tested my patience <laughs> the last couple seasons. Uh, and part of it is just, you know, there's... Jonathan Nolan is one of the lead writers of it, uh, co-creators of it. And he's got that, he's got the thing that his brother has, you know, it's the Nolan thing where I both really like some of the mystery box over cleverness, but then you can stretch that out way too far to the point where like 
what is even the story anymore? Like, is there a story here? Or is this just about how much you can rearrange the order of time to confuse me as much as, much as possible? Anyway, I was basically kind of done with Westworld. But then I saw the trailers for season three. And I was interested again, because it's basically now outside of the park. They're out of the park. It's now in the universe where this robot park exists. And now it's actually doing the reverse. It's like hitting all my buttons. It's doing design fiction the way that Minority Report did. Um, it's it's I, There's a dearth of movies or and TV shows that take place in a near future that do this kind of design fiction. So I give a, mm-hmm. a show or a movie a lot of credit when they really attempt to, at least. And I think uh, this first episode is a lot of promise of we're kind of rebooting the show, leaving the park behind, we're introducing some new characters. We're introducing a whole world that is I'm much more interested to explore than the Western theme park world. Um, and so I'm just I'm excited to see if they can maintain this through the whole season. I hope they don't try to out clever themselves. I hope they just mm-hmm. stick with good characters and good story and yeah, be clever, do the do the twisty thing, but like tell a good story in the meantime as you build to that twisty thing. Uh, so far, so good. I'm only one episode in, but I am quite pleased so far with this season nice alt shift x has a great uh kind of tear down of westworld season it's two. like a rant it's very cathartic. yeah <laughs> in, in his yeah. wonderful yeah. alt shift x voice which That's is just, great i recommend that i, sh- I should have watched that i'm curious to see where it keeps going i have been rewatching 30 rock so good uh which it, it's just one of my favorite shows of all time because it's just so so good and so clever uh and i there are so many things to to talk about it. Like anytime I rewatch a show, I'm just like, yeah, no, yeah, it's good. Go go watch it again. And I like I just love the the meta jokes. Like it's a it's clearly a show written for people that have some knowledge of how shows are made and how what like writing is about. Because there's like rule of three jokes and just like jokes on jokes where they like set up a joke and instead of making that joke, they make a joke on the joke that you thought they were gonna make. Like I love. I love that so, so much. But it's also been interesting because it was a pretty political show and it's 12, 14 years old now, something like that. And so it's also been interesting seeing them deal with topics in a way that, you know, wouldn't fly anymore. Like, I think it's it's still in the, the gray zone of the line, but, you know, like race and gender and equality and all these things they touch on, I feel like you'd have to do it differently today, which has also made me think about Mm. comedy in general. And I think that's, you know, a lot of comedians have complained that people, you know, woke culture and like people are too sensitive because they don't laugh when we're (laughs) racist anymore. And just that the comedy, I feel like is, can be a way to reveal the truth of a moment and like, to have us interface with that in a way that makes us laugh. And so part of me is wondering if just necessarily certain kinds of comedy aren't going to age well because the truth of that moment mm. evolves. So I've been watching, I've been laughing, I've been thinking, I've been very much enjoying myself rewatching. <laughs> Liz Lemon. Nice. What a journey. It's so great. I Liz So Lemon. great. That show's amazing. I just want to quote everything Tracy Jordan says. <laughs> have some self-respect bird don't you know you can fly like live every week like it's shark shark week i'm going to prove that i can finish what i and then he doesn't say start it's just genius anyway i always i always think back to um me in 2000 uh 
seven, eight when when Thirty Rock started, uh, which was the same time that Studio Sixty started. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which were both like basically the exact same premise, very different shows, obviously. Um, and I was like, oh, yeah, which show is going to succeed? The one with like the lady from Saturday Night Live or the one by Aaron Sorkin? Like, yeah, that's a tough one. And of course, <laughs> Studio 60 went nowhere <laughs> and 30 Rock became amazing. Like, oh, I think it was it. also like a show. I watched the first couple episodes when they came out and I was like, I was like, yeah, it's fine. And then like when I then went back in after it had been like maybe done and watched the whole thing. I was like, okay, genius. Yeah. We'll have to talk more about 30 Rock at some point yeah. because there's just like 18,000 things to say. Yeah. Maybe do an episode For about sure. 30 Rock. Or right. mm. 18,000 episodes even. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. Well, this has been our conversation about Parasite. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Thank you to the patrons that support this show and make it possible. Hit us up on Twitter. We want to know what you think about Parasite or any other random thoughts you have. We always love to hear from you. Uh, Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye, everybody. Bye, everybody. Bye, everybody.